0: Matthew, the writer of the Gospel of Matthew, he was a man who didn't have a lot of friends, but what he lacked in friends, at least he made up for, in money. You see, you see Matthew was a tax collector, and a tax collector in those days was basically a professional extortionist. The tax collector was usually very wealthy, but at the same time, they were also very lonely because they were one of the most despised people in society. You see, it wasn't just that people didn't like paying taxes. I mean, I'm sure that was part of it too. But it wasn't just that people didn't like paying taxes. It was what those taxes represented and the way that those taxes were collected. You see, in that situation that they were in, the taxes represented foreign occupation, The nation of Israel at one time had been a great kingdom with a rich history, but now at this point they were under an oppressive foreign occupying regime. And if it wasn't bad enough that their country was occupied by foreign powers, they also had to give their own hard-earned money to pay the salaries of those occupying forces who they didn't want to be there in the first place. And so you can imagine there were a lot of people in Israel who said, I don't want to pay that money. I don't want to give my hard-earned money to these people who I don't even want here in the first place. And so the Romans who were occupying Israel, they went out and they hired people from amongst the Israelite population there. And they hired their own countrymen to collect these taxes from their fellow countrymen. And in order to get people to pay their taxes, they, the Romans really didn't care what means they used to get that money, they just cared that they would get the money, and so the tax collectors used some, you know, means of coercion to get people to give them that money. They used threats and intimidation, They would shake people down, you know, whatever it took to get people to pay up. And the way it worked is that each tax collector was assigned to raise a certain amount of money, kind of a quota, Uh, from their particular region, and any amount that they could collect beyond that was theirs to keep. And so most most tax collectors became very wealthy, and in a society where almost everybody was dirt poor, tax collectors stood out because they were very rich, but the way they got rich was by taking advantage and extorting the poor. So for this reason, you know, Jewish people really did not like tax collectors. They really considered them to be the absolute scum of the earth. And that's why it's significant that when Jesus came along, he didn't shun the tax collectors in the way that all of the other religious people in that society did. Now, Jesus actually befriended them, which would have been absolutely shocking to the average person. He went to their houses and ate dinner with them. You know, and, and people were very much scandalized that, by that. I mean, why would a man of God, a godly person, why would he even spend time with a dishonest and unethical person like a tax collector who gets rich at the expense of the poor? These people who, who sell, they sell out their own people, their own countrymen to the Romans so they can get rich. That's the kind of person that Matthew was. He had a lot of money for sure, but at what cost? He must have lived with a very guilty conscience. He had money, but certainly he couldn't have been completely happy. Not only did everybody hate his guts, but you got to imagine that sometimes he probably hated his own guts, right? He was probably like, I even hate myself for what I'm doing. But one day Jesus walks by with this booth where Matthew had his table set up, where he was collecting taxes, and Jesus looked him right in the eye and said, you follow me. Follow me. And you can imagine, I mean, somebody just walks up to you and says, hey, follow me. You're going to be like, what? Uh, Where? Where are we going? I mean, he just says, follow me. When? Right now? Just follow? Yes, follow me. Let's go. You know, Matthew had probably heard of Jesus before. I mean, everybody was talking about this man, Jesus. And now here he was standing before him, looking him right in the eye, telling him to stand up and walk away from everything and just leave it there and start a new life. A new life, a life devoted to knowing God and doing the will of God. And Matthew, he did stand up that day. He responded to that call, that challenge, that invitation to stand up. And he walked away, and he left everything behind, and he followed Jesus. And that day was the first day of the rest of his life, right? It was the first day of a beginning of a whole new life for Matthew. For three years, he walked with Jesus. He went from being a rich man to being a homeless guy, right? But he was walking with Jesus as one of Jesus' disciples. And Jesus taught him how to pray. And Jesus taught him what it means to know God. And Matthew was with Jesus when Jesus was arrested and led off to be crucified. And Matthew saw Jesus with his own eyes after Jesus had risen from the dead. Now, tradition tells us that Matthew went on after that to become a pastor and to eventually become a missionary who went to Ethiopia and took the gospel to the African continent where he later died. And, and think about that. How did his life end? His life ended in service to others, in service to the mission of the gospel. He, he had started out as a man who was trying to get rich at the expense of other people, but he died as a hero. He died as a man who was doing the will of God and giving, literally giving his life to others. So different, right? Such a huge change in his life look at how his life ended up compared to where it it was going before he met jesus it took a completely different path that day all because that one day when he met jesus he left everything and followed him that is always what happens by the way when you respond to that call of jesus christ to follow him it changes the trajectory of your life But before Matthew went to Ethiopia as a missionary, he did something which uh, we all benefit from to this very day. He picked up a pen and paper, and he wrote a book, which we now hold in our hands this morning, the Gospel of Matthew. You see, Matthew, as a tax collector, he had a certain skill set, didn't he, right? He was good at a couple things, you know, other than getting rich. I mean, as a tax collector, he had to learn how to keep detailed records, right? And he had to learn to read and write. It's, co- it's commonly believed that Matthew was the recorder, you could say, amongst the disciples. The one who was in charge of taking notes during Jesus' sermons. And who would keep a detailed journal of the things that they did and the things that Jesus did and said over the course of these years. And this book that he wrote, the Gospel of Matthew, he he compiled it from those records, we can assume, that he kept during those three years that he spent with Jesus. So do you see where I'm going with this? Matthew had a certain skill set as a tax collector, right? But God took those skills that Matthew had previously used to rip people off and do unethical things. And God used those same skills for his good and for his glory, You see, God redeemed Matthew, God redeemed his soul, God redeemed his life, and God even redeemed his past and took it, the bad stuff that he was doing, the bad choices he made, and God redeemed those things and even used them for good and for his glory and his purposes. You see, that is what redemption means. That is what redemption means. Redemption is when you take something that's bad, something that's condemned, and you save it, and you give it a new life, and you repurpose it, and you use it for good. That is what God did in the life of Matthew, and that is what God wants to do in your life as well. Let me tell you that, because God, that's who he is. He is a redeemer. And so you can imagine this in your mind's eye, that Matthew, this man who has experienced firsthand the redemption of God in his life, he sits down with a pen and paper and he starts writing out the story of Jesus Christ, his friend, his hero, his leader. He wants to introduce him to the world. He wants everybody to know this story. And so he sits down and starts writing and he says, where do I begin? Well, I better start with the genealogy. i got to give people the back story, right? So they understand that this didn't just happen. This is the fulfillment of so much that God promised over the years. So he starts writing out this genealogy. But as he writes that genealogy, and that's what we have here in the first uh, 17 verses of the Gospel of Matthew. As he's writing that genealogy, in several places, Matthew deviates from the standard format in fact he deviates from his own format the the standard format of a genealogy was that you would simply list the fathers the men in each generation from one generation to the next and Matthew could have done that if his if his only goal was to say that Jesus is the direct descendant of Abraham the direct descendant of King David then it would have been sufficient to just mention the fathers in the genealogy right but on five occasions, as he's writing this genealogy, Matthew deviates from his own chosen format. And in each instance in which he does so, not, he doesn't only mention the father, but he also mentions the mother. In each of those instances, why would he do that? Surely he has a reason and a purpose. And when you look closer, what you find is that in each instance, those deviations represent a story of redemption and that's what we've been looking at over the past couple weeks and we continue that this week we've looked at the first two of those deviations those first two stories of redemption and today we come to the third and so I'll pick up where I left off reading this genealogy last week in verse 5 it says Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. The third mother mentioned in Jesus' genealogy is Ruth. And you may know her story, if you'd please turn with me. Uh, her story is told in the book of Ruth in the Old Testament, which is right between the book of Judges and the book of 1 Samuel. So if you've got your Bible or you're on your Bible app, turn with me, please, to the book of Ruth. And we're going to be looking at this story of Ruth. This is one of the... You know, great stories of the Bible, because it's a story of sacrifice, it's a story of love, it's a story of faithfulness, but above all else, it is a story of redemption. In fact, the word redeemer appears, as we're going to see over and over, in this book. So let's just jump right into it. The, the story of Ruth in the book of Ruth, Ruth chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephraimites or Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. And they went into the country of Moab and remained there. Okay, so the setting of this story is in the time of the Judges. Now, we know from the book of Judges that the time of the Judges was really kind of a dark period in Israel's history. It was a period characterized by chaos and spiritual decline. And, of course, there were a few bright points to that period. But overall, it was a period that lacked godly leadership. But we're, we're introduced here in the beginning of the book of Ruth. This is our setting. In the time of the judges, there lived a happy Hebrew family who lived in the city of Bethlehem. Now, how do I know that they were a happy family? Well, I uh, can figure that out by looking at their names. Uh, look at their names. Elimelech, the father, his name means God is my king. Okay? Naomi, the mother, her n- name means pleasant. And Malon means song. Chilion means satisfaction. Do you get the picture? This is a picture of a happy, content home in Bethlehem. Bethlehem, by the way, means house of bread. And Bethlehem was a fertile agricultural region. I guess we would call it today a bread basket. Uh, and that's significant, though, that Bethlehem, the house of bread, this is the place where many years later, as we sung our last song there, would be born one who would declare, I am the bread of life whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst right ultimately at its heart the story of this family here in the book of Ruth is the story of that man Jesus Christ but the picture we get as we begin the story is that of a happy content God-fearing family until something happened that changed things it was a wrench in the works right there was a famine Now, a famine in those days for an agrarian society was a a huge problem, right? This would be the equivalent today of, you know, dad losing his job and getting laid off, and now you can't pay the mortgage, and you have to sell the cars, and things are bad economically. And so try to put yourself in their shoes. Husband and wife, they've got two sons, and they're facing a famine. What are they going to do? Let me ask you, what would you do? You see, the reality of life is that all of us face periods of famine from time to time, you could say. There are crises and hardships that come, and sometimes they're completely beyond our control. The question is not whether times of famine will ever come. The question is, where will you go when they do? Because they will come. Now Elimelech chose to take his family to the pagan land of Moab rather than stick out this rough patch with the people of God in Israel. And so he leaves this place, Bethlehem, the house of bread. And where does he go? To Moab. Now just think symbolically, right? Moab is the land east of the Dead Sea. And currently this would be the country of Jordan. Now, Moab is the place where the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because of unbelief before they entered into the promised land. So, returning to Moab, I mean, represents a step in the wrong direction. And if we're thinking about names here, think about this. Bethlehem means house of bread. In the Old Testament, God says, Moab is my wash basin. Which, in our modern language, you would probably say... Toilet bowl. So just an image there for you. Uh, they're leaving the house of bread and going to the toilet bowl. Never, never a good thing to do, right? And so uh, this is a step in the wrong direction and we will see. This is a decision which they come to greatly regret. They will wish that they had stayed in Bethlehem and stuck it out through the famine with the people of God rather than seeking the easy way out, the prosperity down in the land of Moab. And what they're going to find in Moab is something that many of us find to be true, and that is this that changing location, geographical location, doesn't fix your life. It doesn't fix all your problems. They're going to face hardship in Moab too. Only in Moab, they're not going to have a community of believers around them like they do in Bethlehem. In Isaiah chapter 43, there's this great promise from God where God promises that he will be with us when we pass through the deep waters and when we walk through the fire, he will be with us so that the fire does not consume us and the waters do not overwhelm us. But too many times we tend to be like, you know what, I just want to avoid the fire. I'll just go where there's no fire and I'll get out of here. And I don't want to walk through the deep waters. I'd rather avoid them. And as a result, we miss out on the opportunities for deep fellowship with God that come from walking with him through the fire and through the deep water and seeing how he carries us and doesn't let us be consumed during those times. And so often when we we're faced with difficulty and hardship, we respond like a right? We say, let's just run away from these difficulties. Let's move. Let's get out of here, rather than walking through them with God and with the community of believers. As we're going to see, this journey to Moab is going to last a whole lot longer than they originally planned, and they're going to end up losing uh, everything in the process. So we continue in verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. And these took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. And they lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died. So that the woman was left with her two sons, or without her two sons and her husband. She goes down to Moab with a husband and two sons, and now. We see that she's in Moab and she has no more sons and no more husband. Everything's gone. Uh, This move to Moab, it's really just turned out to be quite the disaster. And so we read in verse 6 that Naomi arose with her daughters-in-law and returned from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people. And given them food. So Naomi says to herself, you know, she says, it was a mistake to come here to Moab. I shouldn't have done this. I should have stayed in Bethlehem. And so she says, it's time to just cut my losses and return to Bethlehem. Verse 7. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way and return, to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may each find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters, why would you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night, and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it's exceedingly bitter for me, or for, for, to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Naomi wants what's best for her daughters-in-law. They, they're young. They could probably remarry. They could probably have a family. She doesn't want to take that away from them. And so what she's doing here is she's releasing them from their obligation to take care of her, their family obligations to her. She's saying she's just blessing them and releasing them, really wanting them to have what's best for them. In verse 15, we see Ruth is clinging to Naomi, and she says, see, Naomi says, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law, but Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. And I love this. Listen to this. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go, she said no more. You know, what Ruth says here to Naomi, really, this is one of the most beautiful statements of love and faithfulness that's ever been recorded. I have this verse actually um, engraved on my wedding ring. Uh, Rosemary did that for me when we got married as her way of making this statement to me, a statement of love and devotion and commitment. So this is something which has always been and continues to be dear to my heart, what what, what Ruth says to Naomi. But but notice this. I think this is actually very incredible. Uh, Ruth says, I don't want to go back to Moab. I want to stay with you. I want to be part of your people, and I want your God to be my God. And that's incredible, right? Because what that means is that Naomi had such a, a powerful impact on Ruth that Ruth not only wanted to be around her, but she wanted what Naomi had. She recognized something in Naomi and she said, I want that for myself. Something that stood out, something different. And Ruth understood that the thing that made Naomi and the people of Israel different was that they had a relationship with their God. And Ruth says, I want to know your God. I want to be part of that community that exists over there in Israel. So take me with you. I know that by doing this, I'm giving up my opportunity to have a family of my own. I know that by doing this, I'm giving up my chances to get married. But I don't care. I want to be with you. I want to know your God. And I want to be part of your people. You see, Ruth had noticed Naomi's faith, which is interesting, right? Because Naomi did not have an easy life. She wasn't prospering. She's poor, and everybody around her has died, and she has nothing, right? She, she lost her husband and both of her sons, and th- but yet through all of those things, Naomi continued to honor and love and trust in the Lord, and that had an impact on Ruth. She saw that, and it left such an impression on her that she said, I want to know your God. You know, what I've found is that it's, it's really in the dark and difficult times of life That the light of God, which he has placed within us, is most clearly visible to people around us. It's in the dark and difficult times the most. You know, it's when you're squeezed that what's on the inside has the opportunity to come out and other people see it. And that's important for us to remember, that the way you react to hardship, the way that we react as believers to hardship, the way that we walk with God through the deep waters and through the fires, it speaks volumes to the people around us who who know who your God is. It, It tells them who your God is. It is one of the most powerful testimonies that you can possibly share. And if you do that, there will be people who, like Ruth, they see it, and they're impressed by it, and they say, you know what? I want your God to be my God. So verse 19, we continue here in chapter one. The two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem, and when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? And they said, and she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt you know, just broken. She's got nothing. She left with so much, and she's come back with nothing, and she said, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. That whole Moab thing was a big mistake, wasn't it? But let me ask you this. Can God bring something good even out of our mistakes? I believe that he can, even out of our backslidings. Absolutely, if you will turn to him, if you will return like Naomi, she's like the prodigal daughter of the Old Testament. If you will return like Naomi, God can take even your mess-ups, even your, your blowing, you know, blowing it, and he will redeem those things and turn them into something glorious. Let's check it out from verse 2. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband, a worthy man, or some translations say a wealthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter." If you've ever moved to a new town, you know what it's like, right? You've got to find a place to live, you've got to find a job, and you start thinking through, well, who do I know around here who can help me to get on my feet? And so Naomi remembers that, well, there was this one relative of her deceased husband, this guy named Boaz, and uh, and maybe they could go and ask him for help. You know, during the time of the famine, you know, Elimelech and his family had left the promised land. They had gone to Moab, but this man Boaz... And and his family, they had stayed in Bethlehem. And they had been there through the famine. And during the famine, though, we see that God took care of them. They're still here. And in fact, not only are they still here and surviving, but now God has caused them to be very wealthy. And so Naomi tells Ruth about Boaz. And and Ruth decides she's going to go check this out. She's going to go over to his land to pick some grain to eat. You see, the law of Moses in Leviticus chapter 19, it, it gave this provision for how the wealthy were responsible to take care of the poor. So uh, the idea was that no one in Israel should ever starve, and everyone should have their basic needs met. And so in Leviticus chapter 19, the law required that farmers, um, they, they were not allowed to harvest all of the grain in their fields, but they were to leave some of it in the fields on purpose for the poor. And that's really an interesting system of benevolence if you think about it because it provides for the needs of people who have fallen on hard times but yet it requires initiative and some effort on their part in order to get it. And so they would leave some of the grain on the, you know, in the fields and the people would go there and they could pick it and eat it there on the spot. So Ruth goes into Boaz's field to glean because that is exactly how poor they really were. They did not have any food to eat. So we read from verse five, chapter two. Boaz said to his young men, a uh, young man who was in charge of the reapers, "Whose young woman is this?" And the servant who was in charge of the reapers said, "She is a young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the land of Moab." She said, "Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers, so she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest." All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before." May the Lord repay you for what you have done. A full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. You know, Boaz is impressed by what he hears about Ruth. This story of how she gave up her opportunities to seek a husband and a family back in Moab, and she has sought after uh, coming to Israel so that she can help her mother-in-law who's been widowed. And so Boaz says, you know, I don't want you to go to any other fields. I want you to stay here because I am going to take it on myself. I am going to take care of you. I'm going to make sure that you're protected and safe. I'm going to make sure that you're fed and provided for. And of course, Ruth is just blown away by this. I mean, this is grace. This is undeserved. She's a foreigner. She's an outsider. She's an immigrant. And Boaz is showing her incredible kindness. Kindness verse 14 At mealtime Boaz said to her Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine so she sat beside the reapers and he passed her the roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had come as she had some left over When she rose to glean Boaz instructed the young men saying Let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her and also pull out some of the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her So he you know Boaz has her over for dinner he has her to dinner with his workers even though she's a beggar and he treats her with dignity and he provides for her and so over the next few verses we read that Ruth goes home and had these huge bags of food that had been given to her and Naomi her mother-in-law asks her where'd you get all this food from and she says I got it from Boaz your relative and we read in verse 20 Naomi said to her daughter-in-law may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And Naomi also said to her, and this is the key, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. There's that word, isn't it? Redeemer. Some of your translations may say that he is one of our kinsmen, he is one of our relatives. The idea here is a kinsman-redeemer. You might have heard that phrase before. In Hebrew, this is the word goel right? Goel. And and what it means in this context is this, that the law of Moses had special provisions to prevent capitalism from getting out of hand. And one of those provisions was that every 50th year was a year of Jubilee. You might have heard that term before. And in the year of Jubilee, what happened is that all of the debts were canceled, right? All of the debts were wiped away, all of the land which had been lost, like say through bankruptcy or mismanagement, or that had been sold because of debt, it would all return to the original owners in the year of Jubilee. And so this was really a safeguard against greed and against hoarding wealth. It was really to ensure that there was always a level playing field and to prevent a disparity between the rich and the poor. And as gracious as the year of Jubilee was, still 50 years is a long time to go without having land, especially if you're a farmer. So there was one other provision there in the law of Moses, and that was this, that the closest kinsman had the right at any time to buy back property on behalf of a family member so that would mean that they would have to pay the full market value right they didn't didn't just get it for free they had to pay the full value but they had they had the right to buy it back at any time if they could afford it so during this move to moab right no or sorry naomi and her husband they either uh, sold this property or, or naomi is now in a financial situation where she's forced to sell it now because they're broke but this man boaz He qualifies as this goel, right? This kinsman redeemer, a relative who has the right to buy this property if he wants to. But that's a really big thing to ask somebody to do, right? That's like defaulting on your mortgage and asking someone to pay it all off for you. It's a big deal. Why would Boaz do this for them? He barely even knows them. But Boaz is their only hope. They're going to lose their house. They're going to lose their property. Not only are they going to be poor and widowed, but they're going to be homeless. They're going to be out on the street. And even if the year of Jubilee does roll around in just a couple of years, we don't know when it would be, but we do know this, that women were not allowed to own property on their own yet. So if the time came for this property to go back to its original owner, it wouldn't go to them anyway. So no matter what, they're really in quite a bind. And Boaz is the only guy they know who has the ability to help them out. And the question is, will he do it? Will he do it? We don't know. But there's another catch to this scenario, which makes it even more unlikely that Boaz would do it. You see, anybody who would purchase Elimelech's land, they would also have to take responsibility for these two women who were the surviving members of Elimelech's family. That would mean that Boaz would have to marry Ruth now a noble man of israel why would a noble man of israel marry a woman from moab he simply wouldn't it just wasn't done i mean she was a poor immigrant girl from moab who had been married before i mean she's got the odds stacked against her you see not only Is it the fact that she's already been married before and that she's a foreigner, but she's from Moab of all places? You see, the Jewish people really looked down on the people of Moab. They really disdained them. They couldn't stand them. Whereas they considered other nations a threat to them, they didn't consider Moab a threat as much. Really, they they looked at the Moabites as just these backwards, inbred barbaric rednecks really they they just thought nothing good of them and and that inbred part was was actually kind of true because if you look at Genesis chapter 19 what you find and this is part of the reason why the Jews did not like them what you find is that the Moabite people originated out of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters Right. So, I mean, the inbred thing had some something to it, really. And so all these factors together, it doesn't seem very likely that Boaz would want to take all of this on. I mean, pay off all their debt and and then also marry Ruth. I mean, this would be a huge thing. Boaz really doesn't stand to benefit from this very much. But Ruth, you know, she keeps on going. We see at the end of chapter two, she keeps on going into the fields of Boaz and gleaning throughout the harvest. And we pick up in chapter three. Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, "'My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, "'that it may be well with you? "'Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? "'See, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor.'" "'Wash, therefore, anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. "'But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. "'But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. "'Then go, uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what to do.'" And she said, "'All that you say, I will do.'" So Naomi, you know, she's thinking, look— I know it's a long shot, but we're never going to know if Boaz would be willing to do this thing for us, to be our redeemer, if we don't ask. So, look, we're, I mean, time's just going by. We've got to at least ask. Now, Ruth, being a foreigner, she didn't know the customs of Israel, and so Naomi has to tell her what to do. And the custom was, if you were going to ask somebody to redeem you in this way, you would go at night, and and while they were sleeping, you would curl up at their feet. And if this person, this kinsman redeemer, stretched out their blanket and covered you up also with their own blanket, that was their way of saying, I've got you covered, right? Of saying, I'm going to do it. I'll take you in under my wings. I'll be your redeemer. And if they didn't do that, if they didn't cover you up, well, then the answer was no. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. May you have, you have made this last kindness greater than the first in which you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. Boaz wakes up surprised to find Ruth laying at his feet and she explains what she's doing, that she's making a request for him to redeem her. For him, you know, they both understand what that means. It means paying off her debt, but it also means marrying her. And this is kind of a, this is a strange, old-school type of wedding proposal, really, right? And, and Boaz says here in verse 10, he says, You know, Ruth, the one thing I'm particularly impressed about you is that you're modest, right? He says, I'm impressed by your modesty. A lot of women in Ruth's situation, with the biological clock ticking, they would have been out there trying to find a man, any man, Just give me some place to live and give me a family, especially in that society. But Boaz has noticed Ruth at work, right? She's not flirting with the other guys at work. She's not chasing after wealthy people in order to try and land herself a husband. No, Boaz has noticed that she's modest, and he respects that about her. And I would say that to any parents who have daughters or any girls in here today. Take note of that, that godly men notice modesty, and they find it attractive few more verses. In verse 11. Now, my daughter, this is Boaz speaking, do not fear. I will do for you as you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. Boaz says, you know, I'm honored that you would ask me to do this, and I am willing to do it. In fact, I'm excited to do it, but there's one problem. There's another guy who's actually a closer relative than I am, and that means that he has the right of first refusal. So you know what? I'm going to go talk to him and see if I can work something out, and then I'll let you know what happens. Turn to chapter four, verse one. Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friends, sit down here. And they turned aside and sat down, and he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here, and they sat down. And he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative, Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And the man said, I will redeem it. Right. So the guy is like, Hey, this sounds like a a great business opportunity. But then, check this out. Boaz, who really wants to marry Ruth, he plays the trump card in verse 5. Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you will also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of his dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, "Uh, I can't redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. Basically, here's the deal. He says, look, you have the right to this property first. And, uh, and by the way, though, just throwing this out there, if you marry it, if you buy that land, you're going to also have to marry the woman who comes with that uh, family, the widow involved. She's from Moab, by the way. I mean, it probably wouldn't be good for you. You probably don't want to do that, right? And the guy's like, yeah, that's a good point. I don't want to you know, mess up my portfolio. So I'm just going to pass on this business opportunity. You see, this guy's only interested in the financial aspect, but Boaz doesn't care about the financial aspect. Boaz cares about Ruth. What Boaz is doing is is really sacrificial. It's, It's very selfless. He's sacrificing his finances. He's sacrificing his own inheritance. He's giving up his inheritance because he has come to love this woman, Ruth, and he wants to be with her, and he wants to take care of her. And now that Boaz has done his due diligence, he's got the green light to buy this property and more importantly, to marry Ruth. And we see that marriage here in verse nine. Uh, Boaz said to the elders of the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon. In verse Thirteen. We read, Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And the women said to Naomi, Naomi, "Blessed be the Lord, for He has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may His name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life." I love that phrase, he will be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now this brings us back to where we started. In the first chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, Ruth and Boaz, this very unlikely couple. But from them will come generations of people who walk with God, including one who will be king of Israel. He will be a man after God's own heart. His name will be David. We read that here. And from David, another child will be born, one whose coming is from ancient days. The Savior, the Redeemer, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And Jesus will be born in the city of Bethlehem. Why? Why Bethlehem? Well, because Naomi returned to Bethlehem after her sojourn in Moab. Because Ruth, who was a foreigner, wanted to be part of the people of God. Because Boaz acted out of selfless love as a kinsman redeemer. You see, the story of Ruth is a story of redemption. From the fact of of the origin of the Moabites, her people, a nation born out of incest, a, a messy, broken family, To the fact that Elimelech and Naomi made a bad decision. And rather than trusting the Lord, they ran away from their difficulty and moved to Moab. And they lost everything in the process. But yet God took those regretful mistakes, those errors, those messy, broken situations, and he redeemed them. And he used them for good and for his glory. To show off how incredible his grace is. To show that he takes things that are broken, things that are condemned, and he saves and he gives new life, and he repurposes, and he redeems. You see that word, goel, a kinsman redeemer. God uses that word for himself. He says, you remember the way Boaz act, that acted? That is the way that I act. In Isaiah 54, God says, fear not, you will not be ashamed, for the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. Goel, that same word. For the Lord has called you a wife deserted and grieved in spirit with everlasting love. I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. You see, in the story of Ruth and Boaz, we have this story of love and redemption that that reflects to us God's love and redemption for us. Like Ruth, spiritually, we are foreigners, we're outsiders, we're separated from God, we're completely broke, we have a debt that we cannot pay. But there is one who is rich one who can redeem us, one who can pay that price, that debt that we've accrued before God, he alone can pay it off. But the question is, will he? Will he cover us? Will he take us on? Will he pay our debt? And those, all of those questions were answered on the cross. On the cross, Jesus covered us. On the cross, Jesus paid our debt for our sins. But that's not all he did. He also purchased us in order to make us his own to make us his bride, in order to place his love upon us and live in a relationship with us. So we have Matthew, the extortionist turned pastor, a a person who experienced God's grace and redemption in his own life, and he wants us to know that the Christmas story is a story that God redeems. It's a story of redemption. And let me tell you this today, God wants to do that work of redemption in your life as well. That is what Christmas is all about. Let's go ahead and pray. Stand up and pray. Lord, we thank you for your work of redemption in our lives. We thank you, Lord, that you have purchased us, that you have paid our debt, Lord, that you have covered us, that you have become our redeemer. And we honor you this morning and we say thank you, Lord, just as you showed, as Boaz showed grace to Ruth, Lord, you have showed grace to us. We thank you for that redemption. We thank you that you are our Goel, our redeemer, and we live in that redemption. We bring to you this morning all that we are, and we say, Lord, here it is. Will you take it? Will you take this life, and would you repurpose it and use it for your purposes and your glory, like you did with Matthew and like you did with Ruth? We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.